I'm Sarah Kaplan, and I'm a science reporter at The Washington Post. The news that I write about can feel far away and long ago. Sometimes it's literally both things. But I think that it helps us understand our place in the universe. It broadens our sense of wonder. It expands our curiosity. And those are qualities that you carry with you into the rest of your day. The journalism I do depends on subscribers to The Washington Post. Become one today at postreports.com slash subscribe. Thank you. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Tracy Jan calling from The Post. Am I catching President Trump, how are you? Hi, it's Robin Gibbon at The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, November 1st. Today, restoring Afghanistan's lost era of cinema and an American socialite captured by the Nazis during World War II. So a beautiful young woman is sitting in a field and her friend is behind her decorating her hair. She puts her ear down to the ground, which is covered in these beautiful red flowers, and the camera's showing her face with eye makeup, her long black hair. She's wearing a blue outfit. And then she sort of perks up and she's saying, I hear hoofbeats in the distance. Her friend is looking around and doesn't seem to see anything, and they're saying, there's no sound. And then she sort of jolts up and she says, no, there's a clip-clop of a horse. Sharif is coming. And the camera pans and shows her in full sprint running across this field. And it's just evident Sharif is the love interest. She's been waiting to see him. And the camera shows her up close in this really romantic way. My name is Shabano Grady. I'm a staff writer on the Foreign Desk. These movies are their history. It's their cultural heritage. Um, they sort of compared the process of preserving them to preserving other artifacts that are crucial to understanding Afghan history. When you watch these films, it's like being transported into another world. Every image that we see of Afghanistan these days tends to be Taliban, Islamic State, people crying over bodies in the street. And that is a big part of what's happening in Afghanistan now. But these films show what it was before and what so many people still aspire to reclaim um, whenever the war does eventually end. So what movie is this? This is called Epic of Love, produced in the late 1980s, just before the Afghanistan Civil War. So it would have been probably one of the last full-length feature films that came out before the Civil War, which eventually led to the Taliban taking over Kabul. So it was filmed and produced and released in Afghanistan. Exactly. So it's one of the films in the archive, and the day that we visited the archive in Kabul, we said we'd like to see some scenes from different films. So they showed us some documentaries that showed you know, what real-life Afghanistan was looking at at that time. But it was sort of amazing to also get this clip of what the romantic imagination was talking about at that time, too. And how rare is it to see a film like this? 
Well, during that scene when the woman's hair is being decorated with flowers, my colleague Sharif Hassan, who is an Afghan reporter based out of the Post's Kabul Bureau, turned to me and said, you would just never see the camera pan to a woman's face like this anymore. He sort of had this expression of glee on his face about uh, this amazing scene that he was getting to witness. Testing. I think it's I think it's good. Okay, so we are in the Washington Post office in Kabul. I didn't get that moment on tape, but I did go back and ask him later on what it was like for him to watch these movies and to have lived through that time period. He was a kid when the Taliban took Kabul. So maybe we can start by um, just having Sharif, you explain a little bit about what life felt like in Kabul under the Taliban and what happened to movies and moving images and all of that during that time. So uh, when Taliban captured Kabul in 1996, I was uh, six years old actually, and I was the first grader at school. I do remember that we had a small white and black TV, we had to hide it. And not only us, uh, everyone, because Taliban's uh, religious police, they they had patrols in the streets, uh, so they were looking for movies, they were looking for TVs. And and that's, that's what I remember. I lived under the Taliban for one year. I remember when we were in the archive watching them project one of the movies on screen. It was Epic of Love, a movie from the late 1980s. What were you thinking when we were watching well, that scene? Somet- uh, sometimes I'm jealous of of older generation than me, like my parents. Because of uh, kind of freedoms, political freedoms and liberty that we Afghans enjoyed then. For me, those days are golden days, so I'm just... So when the Taliban took over Kabul, what happened to these films? The Taliban ended up storming the National Film Archive, and a lot of the films at that point had been hidden because the workers had feared that something like this would happen. They knew that when the Taliban took over Kabul, they had announced that they didn't want people to be watching TV. They were banning moving images. And a lot of the images that are portrayed in these movies feature women with their hair uncovered. Um, some of the documentary even include images of women in mini skirts or they're wearing short sleeves. And so they knew that the films would be at risk. So they hid a lot of them behind false walls. They hid them in the ceilings of this building. When the Taliban stormed the building soon after they came to power, they ended up stealing a lot of the movies, burning a lot of them. Um, And luckily, because the Afghan film staff had hidden so many of them, a lot of them survived. But some of them definitely disappeared forever Others are still lost. People have hope that one day they'll turn up, but they don't really know where they are. So for these films that were protected and hidden behind false walls and kept away from the Taliban, where are they now? Well, after the Taliban fell in 2001, people hoped that the films would just kind of re-enter public life. But they're very old films, 16 and 35 millimeter films on old reels. And so they need very specific care. They need to be in climate controlled temperature. They need um, to be washed and cleaned. They can't gather too much dust because it can scratch them. Uh, but there were just not very many resources. So they sort of just stayed in this building, decaying. They were in warehouses. Um, and finally, a few years ago, some of the staff started to think about digitizing them. And when they started the project, they knew that they'd need this $30,000 machine um, that transfers old movies onto computers so you can edit them. 
But the process sort of stagnated, and it was kind of hard to get the ball moving on it. So last year, in a kind of controversial move, the Afghan presidential palace moved all of the films into the archive at the palace. So Kabul is already a very barricaded city. There are blast walls absolutely everywhere, and especially around the presidential palace. I mean, to get in, you basically have to walk down this incredibly long road. Cars aren't really allowed onto it. Um, You go through so many security checkpoints. So people knew that by moving the films away from the original headquarters, they'd be kind of out of reach of the general population. But the palace insisted that this was the only way to ensure that they would be protected and that they hoped that they could make them more accessible to the public once they were digitized. So who are these people who are trying to preserve and digitize these movies? So there's about 10 of them who are working full-time on the project, six days a week, diligently cleaning and watching the movies over and over again to make sure that the sound quality is preserved, that they can fix any glitches that may have come up um, in the meantime. So one of them is Habibullah Habib. He has been working at Afghan Film for decades. He actually helped to hide the films in 1996. He's one of those who risked his life for the movies. And now he is one of the film projectionists. So every day he's placing films on reels and projecting them for another person to sit and analyze the content so that they can appropriately categorize it. So what does he remember from that time when the Taliban came in and started burning some of these films? For him, I think he described it as some of the worst days of his life. He was not only afraid for his own life because he had hidden these films and knew what would happen to him. He would be killed if they found out. But also because he just cared about them so much. They were his entire life. They're his family. He told me that the air that day was full of grief. That was the way that he described it, that smoke was rising. But he didn't describe it as, you know, the air was full of smoke. It was full of grief. How does it feel for them watching these old movies that I assume if they were being hidden that they hadn't seen for a long time? Yeah, I asked them about that. And the only woman who's working on the project is named Nazifa Hashemi. Her job is to watch the movies, take notes about what she's seeing, so both for content and to make sure that if there are any remaining glitches that they're identified before they're transferred onto the computer. She told me that... You know, a lot of the documentary films show a different version of Afghanistan. It shows Afghanistan in the 1960s, 1970s. Women walked around in bell-bottoms. Their hair was long and flowing. Men and women would mingle together at picnics. They would listen to music. They would dance in public. Women wore miniskirts and high heels. She told me she was one of those women. That was her life. Her family was relatively liberal, and she enjoyed all those aspects of existing in public life. So when the Taliban came and she was forced to cover herself in a burqa, a lot of her family fled from Afghanistan, but she stayed behind. She's now watching sort of not her own memories, but these sort of public memories of life in a previous time period and said they both bring her happiness and sadness. She relishes in the fact that she had that time in her life to so much enjoy being a woman and being someone who was able to exist in public. 
She said it's really hard to watch sometimes. She even cries thinking about what she lost, but that she's also so proud to be part of the effort to preserve them. Siobhan, thank you so much. Thank you. And now, one more thing from national security editor Peter Finn. The remarkable story of an American socialite and her escape from the Nazis. Gertrude Sanford Legendre, she was known as Gertie by everyone. She was born in 1902, grew up in a really wealthy American family that kind of moved between Manhattan and South Carolina, depending on the seasons. You know, she went to the races, her family had a Rolls Royce that would drive her around Manhattan. The butler left out theater tickets every morning in case someone wanted to go to the theater that evening. You know, she was just out and about. Though she was very wealthy, she wasn't that interested in being a society gal, so to speak. What she was interested in was way more unconventional. She did shooting and hunting. She led months-long expeditions to Africa. She brought back specimens for major American museums, which you can still see today. She was at her plantation outside Charleston, South Carolina, when Pearl Harbor happened. Both her husband and her wanted to contribute. Gertie looked around for a job and eventually found one in the Office of Strategic Services, which was the wartime U.S. spy service set up by Wild Bill Donovan. She found Washington really dull and bureaucratic and very distant from all the action. And Gertie was a woman who loved action, loved adventure, wanted to be at the center of things. So she started agitating to get out of Washington and ultimately got a job at the OSS branch in London um, and moved there in um, the summer of 1943. She ran the communications office. So she managed all of the cables that were going in and out that contained all the top secret traffic about what the OSS was doing around the world. So she had a lot of insight to all the operations that were underway by OSS by virtue of essentially handling this traffic. She was in London after D-Day. She felt that London was no longer the center of uh, the action. And Gertie being Gertie, she wanted to get to Paris. Um, And after the liberation of Paris in August 1944, the OSS planned to open a new office uh, on the Champs-Élysées. So Gertie uh, got a transfer and moved over there on September 17th to again run the communications office for the um, Paris branch of OSS. Gertie landed in Paris in September 1944. She was a little early for her assignment, so she and three fellow American colleagues decided to get close to the front lines to see some action. They went to Luxembourg, to a town that was supposed to be under American control. But the U.S. had pulled back. They drove right into this place, which was back in German hands. Um, Germans shot at them. Two of them were wounded, and all four were captured. U.S. authorities were obviously concerned. 
They were hugely alarmed because she had handled so much top secret traffic and because she knew so much about the internal organization operations and goals of the OSS. They feared that she would be a, an intelligence bonanza for the Nazis if she was broken. The Nazis didn't know who they had captured. They suspected they might be spies, but they weren't sure. All of them were subject to parallel interrogations. Gertie played a kind of ditzy embassy file clerk who happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, and she pulled it off. They um, discounted the fact that she might be a spy or might have intelligence value, and they began to focus on her as this very wealthy American with impeccable connections to people like General Patton, to the U.S. ambassador in London. So they began to look at her as someone they could exploit for propaganda purposes or perhaps someone they could use as an intermediary to the Allies. Because of her background, they didn't treat her like a normal prisoner of war who you're screened, you're at a transit camp, and then you're moved to a permanent POW camp. Gertie was moved from an intelligence center to a villa in Berlin, from a villa in Berlin to a hotel on the Rhine, from a hotel on the Rhine to a private villa owned by a German industrialist. She was in captivity for six months um, before she escaped into Switzerland with the assistance of some people in the Gestapo. They put her on a train that they believed was going to cross into Switzerland, but didn't, stopped about 100 meters short of the border. And there was a little border crossing, though not an official border crossing, in the middle of these, this vast rail yard. And Gertie ran. A border guard chased her, stuck a gun in her side, but didn't shoot. Maybe because she was a woman, hard to know. And she made it across. She lived out the rest of her life at a, her large plantation outside Charleston, South Carolina. She was a society matriarch down there. She continued to go on overseas trips and scientific expeditions um, very late in life. Um, and she died there at age 98. Peter Finn is national security editor for The Post. His book about Gertrude Sanford Legendre is called A Guest of the Reich. It's out now. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Matt Collette. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Maggie Penman, Renny Spernovsky, Jordan Marie Smith, and Ted Muldoon, who also wrote our theme music. The post-director of audio is Jess Dahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. <laughs>